All right. Well, hopefully I will have somewhere near the amount of energy that Pastor Dustin has. I, I had a chance to speak with him this morning, and he just wanted me to reiterate that he's excited to be here with you and that time is crawling by very slowly because that's what it does when you're waiting and looking forward to something. So uh, I just want to share that with you. A lot of you I know. Some of you I don't. Uh, I'm Kelly. Hi, if I don't know you. Uh, some of you I know, but you were a lot smaller last time I remember seeing you. Uh, so good to see you guys. Uh, you know, I just want to reiterate something to you. You know, it can feel like we're all just kind of biding our time, just waiting for everything to change. Uh, and especially in a situation like where Celebration Center has been for a little while, you're also in this transitional phase. I have found in life, uh, I, don't, I don't know if this has been the case for you, uh, but one of the most uncomfortable places to be in life is when you feel like you're in a temporary situation, but just indefinitely. There's no, like, clear finish line. Like, this is when everything changes and gets better. Um, but I just, I want you to know that you're part of a bigger whole. A couple interactions that I had this week at our church, Center Church, back in Spokane. Uh, a guy, I'm in a, I'm in a men's group. We meet every week. We've met all the way through the, the pandemic. There's four of us. And one of the guys was sharing with us last Thursday He's just, he's just going through some horrible, horrible circumstances in his marriage, stuff that I just wouldn't wish on anyone. And he said to me, you know, my, my brothers, this little circle of four of us, uh, this is the thing that keeps me here every week. If it wasn't for this, I'd just, I would have just checked out and been gone a long time ago. Uh, I had a conversation with another couple, young couple. Uh, I hadn't seen them in several months. We just, we just started having in-person services again back at our church. Uh, so I hadn't seen them in a while. And uh, the way they came to our church about four years ago, they had just gotten married, just moved to the area, didn't know anybody, no family close by. And, uh, and they remembered that the guy who took the pictures at their wedding seemed like a really cool guy and he had mentioned his church so they were like yeah we're gonna go track it down and they came and they've been part of our church for a while now and when I saw them for the first time you know in several months two weeks ago the one thing they kept reiterating to me was we're just so thankful for our church family because we've been working at home our, our natural family doesn't live here and you know the people that we're closest with in our church are really the ones that have kept us sane and what I want to say to you, the reason I'm mentioning all of that is um, the only reason, not the only reason, but a significant reason our church exists at all is because of this church, uh, is because this church supported us and sent us to go do that. And so uh, I want you to know that while you're in a little bit of a holding pattern, uh, you're still part of a much bigger whole. You, you are a part of the massive redemptive work that God is doing throughout all creation, uh, now, I know that just sounds so big. No way I'm a part of that. For whatever reason, I don't know why, but God decided that he was going to rule all things primarily through humans, and you have a huge part in that. So I just wanted to make sure and say that to you, that the church is still the hope of the world. That was all for free. It doesn't have anything really to do with what I wanted to talk to you about this morning. Uh, you know, with everything that's happening in our world today, it can feel like, I don't, I don't think I'm the only one, I think I'm in the majority on this one. It can feel like there's no place in the world for a fair-minded, reasonable person. I'm just going to go on a limb here and let's just have a show of hands. Who feels like at times there's no place for a fair-minded person in this world? Okay, that's a real strong majority. It, it can feel that way, right? Like if I'm a person who, 
who really would just prefer to live at peace with all men. Like Pastor Justin just read from Colossians. If I would prefer to live at peace and be gracious to the people around me, it can feel like I just don't belong. Like I'm the weirdo for wanting that. And sometimes I'm prone to ask the question, how does this end? Like how do we get to resolution on this? How do we get to a point of sanity? How do we get to a point where we can live at peace with each other? And so I just want to tell you, uh, remind you more like, I want to just tell you how this entire human struggle eventually ends. John, the youngest of Jesus' disciples, in Revelation 7, he painted a vivid picture of what it will look like at the culmination of the entire human struggle. And he said that what we're going to see is people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation gathered around God's throne and saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. So no matter what happens between now and then, I just want to remind you that if you've said yes to Jesus, if Christ is in your life, the story ends well for you. There's very much a place for you in all of the madness. So I just I want to make sure you don't forget that. Every person whose hope is in Christ can live at peace today because of that. That's the definitive word. Now, what we can get caught up in doing is saying, okay, well, if that's how it ends, I'm just going to hunker down, try not to sin till Jesus comes back. But there's more to it than that. Because we know the end, now we're, we're free to be an agent of peace, not just hide out and wait for the end. We're free to be, in fact, we're called to be an agent of peace. So this is what I want to do today. Uh, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible or you've you got a device handy uh, or maybe just a piece of scratch paper, there's a couple things that you might want to jot down. Uh, this is, in the Bible, this is Jesus' most well-known public message. Uh, we refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount for very, sp- for very obvious reasons because it's a sermon. You guessed it on a mountain. Uh, And so I just want to focus in on a couple of key verses right at the end of chapter 6. Probably pretty familiar to a lot of you. But they're so relevant right now because we live in what I think a lot of us might refer to as the age of rage or the age of anxiety. Familiar words of encouragement and hope. And so what we're going to do right now is not just read the words. Let's Let's think of it as something bigger. What we're actually doing is, we're actually, as we turn to the scripture, we're activating the rule and reign of God in our lives as we just listen to what Jesus has to say about anxiety and fear. So I'll read it out loud. You can listen or you can read on the screen or wherever you're at. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, this is what it says. Jesus is talking. He says, therefore, I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we wear? So what shall we drink or what shall we wear? 
For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, Uh, so Brandy and I, we were driving here on I-90, and one of the things you notice if you're driving across I-90 is about every mile, in fact, exactly every mile, there's a little green sign on the side of the road with a number on it. They're called mile markers, of course, and the purpose is so that you know where you are. You know your location. So imagine driving through central Washington sometime, uh, maybe to go visit Max, and uh, you're headed through central Washington and your car breaks down. That, that, would be, that would be such a bummer, but no problem. I'll just pick up my phone, call for a tow, not a big deal, so we dial up AAA, call your roadside assistance, hey, I, I need a tow, and they're going to say, okay, where are you? Well, I'm in central Washington. Oh, well, do you know where? I, I don't know, like around the dirt and the weeds? Well, that's like two-thirds of the state of Washington, if you're wondering. You live in the nice part. I live in the dirt and the weeds. And uh, they're not going to know where you are. But if, on the other hand, you said, I'm on I-90 East around mile marker 198, problem solved, right? They'd be right there. That's, that's what the mile marker is intended to do. Now, in order for us to maintain our sanity and our orientation in the age of rage, we need to know where we are. We need to have some markers to remind us who we are and where we're at. And there's three of them in these passages that we just read. And so uh, I just want to share each of them with you. They'll be up on the screen. If you want to circle those in your Bible or write those down, that might be helpful to you. The first one is this. I am valuable to God. I am valuable to God. Now, um, we're Americans, and, um, you know, I like being an American. Um, We're weird sometimes. Like, we do some weird things. We put our value in a lot of strange places. uh, And and so we we have strange ways of making ourselves feel good about ourselves. Particularly, uh, one of the ways we make, we sort of grow in our self-assuredness is by comparing ourselves to other people. So looking at other people and thinking, well, you know, I might not be great, but I'm better than them uh, in one way or another. Uh, I think that's not a uniquely American thing, but that's one of the ways we miss. What if we were just inherently valuable because we were valuable to God? Verse 26, Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Aren't you more valuable? Look how God takes care of them. Aren't you more valuable than that? My wife, Brandy, is terrified of birds. All birds. She won't even root for the Seahawks because they're named after a fictitious bird. Now, before Adam starts an argument about whether or not Seahawks are real, I realize it's a nickname for an osprey, but it's not a real bird. Okay, I didn't want him to try to, like, fight me uh, when church was over. Um, that's just rage because you're mad about last week. All right, you just got it pent up. The point is, Brady hates birds. That's, that's what I'm saying. And so it might be hard for somebody like her to appreciate the analogy, right? You might think, because you don't like birds, oh, great, I'm, I'm more valuable than a dumb bird, so at least I got that going, right? They fly into our living room window and drop dead all the time, so at least I'm more valuable than a bird, But Jesus is actually making this contrast, and if you think about the way that God cares for the birds, he actually goes to some pretty extraordinary lengths. 
And I was, I was listening to another pastor talking about this passage, and I remembered something from my childhood that, uh, that really, like, it made sense out of this, this analogy about us being more valuable than the birds. So my dad is the youngest of 11 kids, and, uh, and number 10 is actually 10 years older than him. And, and I think one of the things you could deduce from that is that when he was born, his parents were not that young. And when I was born, they were really not that young. And so most of my memories of going to visit my grandparents uh, have a lot to do with, like, sitting in recliners, watching nature shows. And as a kid, I just didn't really look forward to it. Sounds a little more appealing now, but it wasn't something that I was excited about. But I remembered this image that I had uh, of one particular show that was on there. Oh, man, it just all came flashing back to me. It was called Mutual of Omaha. Does anybody remember that? Okay. Oh, my gosh, I just dated myself. Every millennial is just totally judging me right now. Um, okay, so uh, there, were, uh, there was a safari, right? The cameras are going through the kind of the grasslands in Africa, and there are giraffe. Is, is the plural of giraffe giraffes? I'm going to go with giraffes. There's giraffes out there, and they all have these birds sitting on their back and, like, on their head just, like, pecking at them. And I remember, the reason I remember it is because when I saw that as a kid, I thought, that's got to be really annoying for those giraffes. That's, that's got to be annoying. Just all day long, just these birds sitting there, pecking at your head, pecking at your back. Just jump. Well, what they explained in the video is that uh, there's a particular type of tick that actually likes to colonize on the back of the giraffe, on top of their head, their neck, and their back. And these birds just love these things, so they just sit there and just gobble them up all day, just pecking away at, at the ticks. And so there's this really kind of cool relationship, actually, between the birds and the giraffe, where, uh, you know, you can imagine if the bird wasn't there eating the tick, what would happen to the giraffe? And it turns out that God has actually provided food for these birds. And it works perfectly in harmony with the rest of the ecosystem. The giraffe is probably really thankful, actually, that the bird is there. But either way, neither the birds nor the giraffe are worrying about it. None of them went out and harvested the ticks. None of them planned ahead for it. They just do it. It's just been provided. They don't feel any anxiety about it whatsoever. So when Jesus says, I take care of the birds, that's just one of a million kind of detailed ways in which God provides for his creation. But then he says, aren't you much more valuable than they are? I've, I've accounted for their needs, and aren't you more valuable to me than the birds are? Ephesians 2.10 says, we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's masterpiece. You are, think about this, uh, you look in the mirror, you might not think to yourself, I am the pinnacle of God's creation. Yes, you are. That's what he says. You're the pinnacle of his creation. He created you anew, redeemed you completely in Christ Jesus. Get this, to do good works that he planned for you. He has good things for you to spend your life on. You're much more valuable than the birds who just, you know, sit there and pick up the ticks all day. Uh, God says, I don't just take care of your physical needs, but I have a plan and a purpose for you because you are my valued possession. So if you're thinking, or if you ever have the thought, that I'm just inconsequential. I think feeling irrelevant is one of, one of probably our biggest fears in life, getting to the point where we just don't 
matter ending up in a spot like that. If you feel inconsequential or insignificant, I don't know how to tell you this, but you're wrong. Now, I know you might think that makes me kind of a mean pastor. No, no, that, that makes me a good pastor for telling you that. If you feel like your life is somehow insignificant or inconsequential or you're just circling the cul-de-sac, not doing anything that matters, you're wrong. That's the opposite. God says you're his masterpiece. You're extremely valuable to him. You're valuable to God. That's the first marker. The second one is this. God cares about your needs. God cares about my needs, material and otherwise. In verse 27, Jesus asks maybe the greatest rhetorical question in all of human history. He says, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And the answer, as we all know, is no, we can't. And what we do with that answer, as we all know, is we do it anyway. It's, it's almost universally true. But then after he says that, this is what he says in verse 28. He says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, just kind of parenthetically, when I read that, I get to the last part where he sort of tacks on the you of little faith part. I kind of feel scolded. You feel scolded? It sounds to me like I've done something wrong. Uh, but, but I actually think we should read it this way. When he says you of little faith, it's more like it just takes a little faith. Your faith is small, but God can work with that. We see that in other places where Jesus talks about how it just takes the faith of a mustard seed. So when he says you of little faith, don't think of it as a hammer. Like, hey, let's get some faith up in here. Don't think of it that way. All it takes is a little bit. Just, just trust in me just a little bit, and I can work with that. Now, uh, did you know... Okay, he's making this a new analogy about God taking care of the flowers. Did you know that there are roughly 400,000 flowering plants on, on earth? You knew that, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you probably already knew that. Well, there's about 400,000 different flowering plants. Now, think about this. 400,000 of them, and every single one of them has unique needs. Every one of them is indigenous to a particular ecosystem, a climate uh, requires kind of a specific range of elevation. Every one of them needs a specific amount of sunlight per year, annual rainfall. Uh, it has particular circumstances around its, uh, its pollination needs. I mean, every single one of those 400,000 flowering plants is kind of needy, right? They, they kind of have a specific set of needs, and yet they all bloom for the world to see, and God accounts for the specific set of needs of 400,000 different flowering plants. Now, um, that's, a, that's like a pretty broad attention span. God's paying attention to a lot of things all at the same time. But think about it this way. Try to imagine, to whatever degree is possible, the vastness of the universe, okay? The entire size of the universe. I know, right? It explode. Let me just give you a tool to like help you, help you out with this, okay? Uh, Brandy and I drove here from Spokane. It took us roughly five hours at roughly 75 miles per hour on the freeway. 
you know, a couple of little stops here, but about five hours at about 75 miles per hour on the freeway. Now, if somehow you were able to go 1,000 miles per hour in a straight line, it would take you roughly 308 years to get to Neptune. And you haven't even left our, our solar system yet. Okay? Neptune is the farthest planet in our solar system. When I was a kid, Pluto got to be a planet, but apparently it's been kicked out. Okay, so 308 years at 1,000 miles an hour, you would still be in our solar system. Now, our solar system is just one of an unknowable number of solar systems in all of the universe, okay? So just try to, just take that and try to somehow comprehend as much as is possible just the vastness of the universe, okay? Just how big it is. God made all of that. So big that you can't even put your head around the size of it. And yet, that God is also intricately aware of the needs of this flowering plant and 400,000 of his friends. He's paying attention to all of this vastness and the tiny, minute details of this flower and its specific needs. God says, I care so much more about your needs than I do about those flowers. Do you ever wonder if God is paying attention to your needs? Do you ever wonder if he's aware of what's happening in your life? The answer is yes. The answer is he's absolutely, he cares deeply for your needs. Peter, Jesus' right-hand disciple, uh, he said in 1 Peter 5, 7, he said, cast all your cares on God because he cares for you. You might not feel special, like there's anything unique about you, but he doesn't care about you because of what you do. He cares about you because you're his masterpiece. You bear his image. He plans on spending eternity with you. I don't know if that's even a good idea on his part to want to spend eternity with me, but he wants to spend eternity with you. Of course he cares about your needs. Of course he cares deeply about you. That's the second one. You're valuable to God. God cares about your needs. And number three, God has promised to provide everything that you need. He's promised to provide everything I need. Verse 33, right at the end of that section, Jesus says, but seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Can I just reiterate that worry will not add anything to your life? Worry is a taker. You, you know this. Worry doesn't give you anything. Worry only takes away from you. Um, you know, if you were just to compare this to like human interactions, if I have a friend who is going through a hard time or is in trouble somehow, it's a joy to help them through that. But then there's the people in your life who just want to take, 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 with no intention of ever changing. They'll ask you for the same piece of advice a thousand times, and you know full well they're not going to do any of it. That gets old pretty quick, doesn't it? Worry is a leech on your joy. Anytime you find yourself worrying, just know I'm going to have less joy in my life because of this. And then you can make an informed decision about whether or not it's a good idea. But here's the craziest part. We don't have to do it. You ever, you ever get so like kind of stressed out or just tired of worrying about something and you just decide, you know what, whatever. I'm not going to worry about it anymore. And then you're kind of like, I feel a little irresponsible 
Like, like maybe I should be worrying about that. That happens to me all the time because I'm like, I'm one of those weirdos who's like, I'm a responsibility taker. And I just like, I, I wear the responsibility even when it's not mine. Uh, I feel irresponsible when I just decide I'm not going to worry about it. But then sometimes I come to my senses and I remember Jesus literally said, do not worry. I don't know how much more explicit he could be than that. I don't know what he could add to that to make me like really get it, but he said it actually multiple times in this passage, do not worry. So I want to give you permission if you're like me and you kind of need that, don't worry. Yeah, be responsible, but don't worry. Every day is going to have enough worries about its own, of its own. Next year is going to come where you're going to, you know, it's going to happen whether you're worried about it or you're not worried about it. Do not worry. Permission right from the top. Now listen, uh, the one thing that I kind of wrestle with sometimes in this passage is this, like, seek my kingdom first. Uh, that's kind of like, it's, it seems like that's probably a good idea, but it's also kind of nebulous, right? It's not, a, it's not as always cut and dry as it could be. I like clear directions. I'm a little bit of a rule follower. Uh, but I had a good example of what it's like when a person has spent their life seeking God's kingdom. Um, this just happened in my life. I had an uncle who passed away just, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he, was, uh, he got sick, and it happened fairly quickly, but it wasn't a surprise. He was, he was an older guy and uh, not in great health, so it wasn't a shock necessarily, but there's a woman in our church who has become a friend. Her name's Cheryl. She texted me, and she, she just wanted to say, hey, Pastor Kelly, just sorry to hear about your uncle. I hope you're doing great. And I didn't really put a lot of thought into my response, but I wrote down what I said. This is, this is what I said to her. I said, thank you, Cheryl. My Uncle Jerry was a gracious man with authentic faith in Christ. All is well. A gracious man with authentic faith in Christ. At this moment, right now, as we're sitting here today, is there anything else about his life that matters than the fact that he deposited grace into other people's lives and he had authentic faith in Christ? There are very few other things. I mean, he did some other stuff in his life, for sure, but none of them mattered nearly as much as those things, especially now. He knows right now, as we're sitting here in this room, he knows full well that there is almost nothing in life beside the kingdom of God that matters in the end. Almost all of the things that we put energy and effort into come to a place that don't matter. And it's usually not when we die. Like, has there ever been anything that you were so excited to buy and you worked and you saved and you spent the money, and you got the thing, and then like a month later, you had just totally moved on for it. It's a good analogy for how we live. Jesus is really communicating to us, seek my kingdom first. Why spend your life worrying and fretting about things that won't matter in the end? That's all, that's all pointless. You're valuable to me. I care about your needs, so seek me first, and I will provide everything you need. Okay, so, so let me rein all that in. Um, I just learned something recently. I've spent a lot of time in life trying to be a good multitasker, uh, maybe even kind of like priding myself on being a good multitasker. And then I read this article that explained how this worked, and it turns out that you actually can't multitask. Like, it's, it is not possible for your brain to focus on two things at once. Now, some of you are good at going like back and forth between multiple things. Uh, like, you know, texting and driving and eating and, you know, swatting at the kids in the back seat. Uh, but chances are you're probably not doing any of them very effectively 
if you're trying to juggle them like that because your brain can't pay attention to more than thing, one thing at a time. It's just a question of how fast you can go back and forth. Well, if your brain can only pay attention to one thing at a time, then whatever you're focused on today is going to dictate your day because it's the only thing that you can focus on in that moment. So whatever you're worried about is only going to serve to get in the way of moving forward from that situation. Whatever is burdening you, that's going to get your full focus because you can only focus on one thing at a time. Well, Jesus said, focus on my kingdom, focus on what I'm doing, and everything else will follow. So how do we seek God's kingdom when all these other cares and voices in life and in the world are just clawing for our attention? Because uh, you don't have to go out and look for anxiety. It'll find you. Now, that, that has become really apparent. Um, that's like one of the really great things about the modern age. So just allow me this word picture to, um, to help you kind of conceptualize what this is like. Uh, I have a friend who he owns a, a fitness studio. He's a, a trainer. And if you uh, are part of this gym, part of what you get is uh, nutrition consultation. So he meets with each of his members every week. And so, um, so I go to their gym. Uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I never do the nutrition part. I don't, I don't care about it. I said to him one time, I was like, hey, Dennis, you know, I love being a part of this community. I love working out here. I, I could do that every day. Disciplining myself to work out every day, that's, that is not a problem for me. It's the, it's the nutrition part. I just like, I just don't want to take my head out of the refrigerator. And he goes, oh, so you don't care about the other 80%? Uh, all right. Uh, all right. So, um, so he does these nutrition consultations. So one day I asked him, I said, hey, I have no idea why I was thinking this. I said, what do you think about artificial sweeteners? Like, are they a good substitute for sugar? And, uh, you know, because I like sweet stuff. I think most of us do. And, uh, and his response was kind of abrupt. Uh, but, what, but what he said to me was, well, I think you should just retrain your palate to desire healthy things instead of looking for artificial junk food. And I was like, no, no, maybe you didn't hear me. I don't want it that bad. All right. Um, but that's a pretty good point, right? Uh, you know, he said, basically, well, don't start by replacing sugar with fake sugar. Don't start by replacing something you shouldn't eat with something else that you shouldn't eat. Start by replacing junk with something good. Now, think about how that might apply to us spiritually and emotionally and relationally. I think what we need to do is retrain our attention and our focus. Uh, I think what we need to do is... Uh, you know, it's, it's funny, you turn on TV and one of the things you realize is that um, fear and anxiety sell a lot of advertising. They must because they're on every channel. I think we need to retrain ourselves so that's not what we desire. What we desire is the kingdom. Retrain our palate to desire good things. Replace junk with the kingdom. Replace what, what we have in mind with what God has in mind. So I hope that you'll just be able to walk away with, uh, from this little section in the Sermon on the Mount, just bearing in mind the mile markers. That's really the big idea that I want you to, to keep in mind, having trained yourself to look for these things, to look for ways that God is taking care of you. He's demonstrating that you're valuable to him, that he cares for your needs, that he's promised to provide for you. And when all else fails, start by remembering how it ends. Start by remembering that someday all of this is going to bow down before God. And if you've said yes to Jesus, that's going to be a good day for you. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus, guess what? It's really simple. 
Uh, Romans, the book of Romans explains to us very simply that all of us have sinned and separated ourselves from God. That, that's a universally true fact among all humans. But all of us have grace available to us freely by putting our faith in Christ. And you can do that right now, today. So I want to just share with you one of, my, one of my favorite passages. It happens to be right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the last thing that Jesus says. It's found in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 24. It's the last, it's kind of the way Jesus rounds out his sermon that day. He says, therefore, because of all of these things I've said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. I want to pray for you and send you out, but this is my encouragement to you is that you'll hear the words and put them into practice. That, that you won't just hear them, but that you'll put them into practice, that you'll consider what God would say to you. So let's pray together, and then my friend Marshall's going to come back up, and he's going to send us out. Lord, we're grateful that we have a piece in your story. And for everyone who is maybe unsure of that, God, I pray that you would speak faith into their lives. And so, God, we just want to acknowledge right now that we bring nothing of our own and that your grace is a free gift to us because you sent your son to die on the cross and pay the bill. And so we just receive that right now for the first time or for the 10,000th time, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that you have provided for our needs both today and tomorrow and in eternity. But God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves through your lens, to see ourselves as valuable, to understand that we are the pinnacle of your creation, and all of this is because you are good. God, I pray for this church that has meant so much to me. Um, Lord, I pray for uh, the future for them, their, their new pastors, the Warfords. I pray you give them safe and, uh, God, just uh, simple travel and that you'd make a smooth process into life and assimilation here in Puyallup. God, I pray for good things that you would, by your power, accomplish great and many things here in this church family. In Jesus' name. Marshall, come on up. Hey, I'll encourage you while he's coming. Next week, one of my all-time, literally all-time favorite preachers is going to be here. And so uh, make sure and be here. And make sure that you invite people to be a church online, too. All right, I'll stop. <laughs>